It's the way the dance is put together. I found that interesting. The possibility of creating a contemporary culture through dance, that made me make that shift from dancer to designer of dance. Hello and welcome to the Terpsichore podcast. We're back in 2023 to bring you more intimate conversations with leading women in dance. If you're new to the podcast, my name is Emily May. I'm a British-born dance writer and critic, and I've been based in Berlin, Germany since 2018. Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines's seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichorean Sneakers, Terpsichore celebrates female dancers, choreographers and bodies in motion by interviewing leading women from the dance industry. For episode 20, I'm delighted to welcome the London-based choreographer Shobana Jayasinghe to the podcast to discuss her life, career and inspirations. Shobana was born in Chennai, India and has lived in Sri Lanka and Malaysia. She founded Shobana Jayasinghe Dance in 1989 and has created over 60 critically acclaimed works for stage, screen and out and indoor sites ranging from Palladian monasteries in Venice to contemporary fountains in London. Shobana's work is noted for both its intellectual rigour and its visceral physicality. It is rooted in her experience and perspective of life as a female post-colonial citizen of the world. She trained in Bharatanatyam, the classical dance of Tamil Nadu, and read English literature, specialising in Shakespeare at the University of Sussex. Over the course of her distinguished career, she's collaborated with scientists, curators, composers, filmmakers, digital creatives, dancers and designers to make multi disciplinary work that places the body centre stage in the dialogue of ideas. On the 19th and 20th of August, Shobana will be restaging her site-specific work Counterpoint in the Courtyard of Somerset House in London as part of the venue's Summer in the Courtyard Festival and Westminster City Council's Inside Out Festival. Originally choreographed in 2010, the work contrasts the powerful curves and thrilling physicality of 22 dancers with the formal lines of the neoclassical courtyard and modernist fountains. Ahead of the performances, I couldn't wait to talk to Shobana about the original inspirations behind the piece, as well as her career-long investigations into composition and writing stories with the body. So hi Shobana, thank you so much for joining us today on the Tepsikri podcast. How are you doing and where are you speaking to us from? Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm in London, where my, I've been based for many, many years now, so and it's a pleasure to join you. We're really excited to talk to you today about your career over the past years and also what you've got coming up next, your next performance in August. But before we do that, I wanted to take a bit of a look back and start at the very beginning and ask you if you can remember what your first encounter or experience of dance was as an art form and how you became interested in it. My first experience of dance is where I grew up, which was in Sri Lanka and in India, you know, in uh, Tamil cinema. Uh, Indian cinema, dance was always a big feature because every single movie had songs and dance. So, you know, I grew up idolizing the dancers that I saw on screen who were all classically trained Indian classical dancers. To me, they just look beautiful, like creatures from another world. Yeah, so I guess that's my first inspiration to dance. And then you did go on to train in Bharatanatyam, right? Which is the classical dance of Tamil Nadu. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started training and what your early training was like in this style? Like most middle-class families, you know, we studied dance not to become dancers. We studied dance because it was considered a desirable, good thing to do in its own right. So that's how I, I learned dance. I learned dance after school or in the weekend. But, you know, I, I knew from an early age that there was something that really 
um, excited my curiosity. I wanted to practice and practice till I got everything right. I always looked forward to the next lesson. It made me interested both intellectually and physically. Maybe for some of our listeners who might not have heard of Bharatanatyam, can you maybe give a brief description of what the style is like and how it maybe differs from some other classical Indian forms like Kathak? Always very difficult to describe dance audio <laughs> in an audio, I'll try. It is very different to Kathak, which is another classical form from India. Kathak is more associated with Mughal courts. It evolved as a, a dance for the court. And even though Bharatanatyam also had at certain periods of its history, it was performed in the court. The king was the patron, a bit like ballet, I guess. I think it had its roots also in religious worship. But even if you didn't know any of those things, what you'd see when you saw Bharatanatyam was an incredibly rule-based dance, again, like ballet. In fact, like ballet, it has a complete devotion to the idea of turnout, which means you know that the body is seen in an incredibly artistically stylized way because whenever you turn out you make the body into something very flat and very iconic so that's what you see in Bharatanatyam. One of its strong features is that it interprets rhythm through footwork but like say flamenco does and then the other feature is that it's very detailed and it uses extremities like neck movements, eye movements, eyebrow movements, fingers, wrists to create a surface for the dance which is incredibly detailed and needs lots of coordination. The eye detail is something that really stood out for me when I've watched Bharatanatyam because I trained actually on the cat scheme in Birmingham on the contemporary strand but it's also where the national cat schemes for Bharatanatyam and Katak were and I remember once talking with the Bharatanatyam dancers and saying oh we're doing this piece, the choreographer's even choreographing our eyes, she's doing this thing and they were like welcome to our world. There's a saying I think it says something like, uh, where the hand goes, the eye goes, and where the eye goes, the heart goes, and where the heart goes, that's where you have engagement with the art form. So actually the eye in Bharatanatyam is used to direct the spectator's gaze to where you want it to rest. You know, it draws their attention to those details you're giving them. And also, I think it just creates an emotional bond with your audience because you look at the audience and you have a very direct eye contact with them and you, you interact with them in very specific ways and you draw their attention and therefore their emotion to what you're creating. I think it's very clever. But as you said, at first you were training in Bratnatyam after school and not with the idea of a career. When did a shift happen? And when did you start to realise that it was something that you would like to pursue professionally? I guess it's when I came to Britain, actually to go to university, do nothing to do with dance. I came here to read literature. I, I saw contemporary dance here. Again, that intrigued me because I saw the possibility of writing stories about contemporary life through dance. And also, I understood that actually there was a whole cultural industry which was happening in Britain, mainly because the government subsidizes the arts. And, you know, it was available to a wide public. It was like any other job. It was like being a doctor or a accountant a dancer, I mean, I'm sure it's probably not as well paid, but, you know, there were networks within which one could operate. And I found that really interesting. I mean, there wasn't a huge major decision. I 
began to dance again, you know, like a hobby during holiday time, weekends, and then I began to perform a little bit. You know, it was a kind of very gradual snowballing effect. I suppose I discovered very quickly that actually I didn't rate myself very highly as a performer. And actually I found performing a bit irksome because I didn't really enjoy, you know, getting ready and everything sort of hinged on this half an hour, whatever you on stage. And I realized actually what had interested me about dance room when I was very young, you know, when I was about six, when I was going to Bharatanatyam classes, actually it's the way the dance is put together. I found that interesting. I found its culture interesting, you know, the historical culture, the possibility of creating a contemporary culture through dance. So that sort of made me, I suppose, make that shift from dancer to designer of dance. I'm assuming that that's what kind of inspired you to set up your company in 1988. Can you tell me a little bit about other motivations potentially that you had to start the company or what you were interested in exploring when you first set it up? I really liked the phrase you used about writing stories with the body. What kind of stories were you wanting to tell at that time when you first set up the company? Well, there were personal stories, really. I mean, I think one of the first the early works I made was called Making of Maps and it was sort of inspired by me looking at the Mappamundi in Hereford Cathedral or maybe it was in an exhibition somewhere and I found that quite interesting uh, this kind of idea of well all maps are subjective you know it's not an accident that we see maps of the world laid out in the way they are uh, flat on the page which doesn't really reflect the size of various countries it diminishes the size of Africa and South America, for example. The Mapamundi actually, I was interested because actually it was a map made in the Middle Ages and because obviously for the map maker and in Europe of the time, you know, Christianity was very important. So he put Jerusalem in the center of his map and everything else is in the periphery, it starts from there. So choosing what's in the center of your map seemed an interesting idea. So that was a piece that I did, which kind of looked at Bharatanatyam and the context of it in, in Britain. Is it in the centre? Is it in the side? Where is it? So the kind of locating this very cultural art form in in Britain, in London, that was what Making of Maps was about. So that was a kind of example of, you know, my early work. Yeah, amazing. I wanted to talk a little bit about configurations as well, because I know that this was the quartet that you launched the company with, and that it was an all-female, all-women quartet, and that you solely worked with women until 2000, female performers. I wanted to ask you what the, the original reason why you mainly worked with women until 2000, and then why you decided to start working with male dancers as well. I think originally, like all choreographers, I worked with the language that I knew best, which was Indian classical dance, Bharatanatyam in particular. And actually, most of the people who did Bharatanatyam and who were available in Britain were female. It does tend to be very dominated by female soloists, you know, that's the nature of it. So it's not very difficult to understand why everybody I work with tended to be female. But I suppose there's also this thing about feeling comfortable with people who are like yourself you know if you're making stuff on yourself then obviously it's much easier to translate it into other bodies that look similar I I guess but then actually gender in a way has never really been an issue for me for creating anything actually one of the amazing things about Bharatanatyam is that 
even though it's dominated by female dancers, unlike ballet, it doesn't have a separate vocabulary or an etiquette for males and females. So often females actually portray everything from male, child, female, monster, animal. So you grow up with a kind of fluidity of representation. And I think when I started to make more work which has to do with personal issues or contemporary issues, then actually I just chose dancers who were around and who, you know, suited whatever I wanted to say. I never knew that actually about the fact that Bharatanatyam, you didn't have these separate gender movements, like because obviously that's such a big discussion in ballet at the moment and how to kind of combat this. And so it's interesting that other styles have been working in this way for like years and years and years. It's got that stylized element. So actually in storytelling, because it's one person, like in ballet, if you tell a story, it's more like theatre, you know, you need different people to portray different characters. In Bharatanatyam, one person has to portray all the characters, you know, male, female, divine. That's how the technique actually evolved for the person to finding ways of actually for a woman to be very manlike, you know, or to be childlike. So that's, that's why, that's the reason. Amazing. So also on configurations, I know that it was set to score by Michael Nyman, who you've had an extensive working relationship with. I've used this music three times and the most important one for me was uh, configurations because he was the first contemporary composer who I reached out to and asked to, to make a work. It was because I'd heard the music that he made for a film, The Draftsman's Contract, and actually the, his use of rhythms really interested me. The way he had a very physical rhythmic structure, but kind of wrapped in a very formal rhetoric, which is very similar to Indian classical music, which is what it does. So that's why I started the conversation. And, you know, he was a really interesting person to work with. When I first heard the music, I was a bit scared actually because I couldn't really recognize where the rhythms that I was looking for where they were because they'd been translated into the string quartet and I had to retune my ears and my head to get what I wanted out of the music but it was an you know really exciting it was a very exciting commission at least for me <laughs> you've not only collaborated with musicians but lots of different artists from different fields from curators to filmmakers or scientists and designers what interests you in working across so many disciplines and how do you kind of identify the people you want to work with or on which project it makes sense for you to work with someone from a specific area well i guess you're led by the central idea. For example, I did a piece called Contagion, and that came about because I was asked to pitch an idea for Britain's homage, I suppose, to remembering the First World War. So I kind of thought, well, what is it about the First World War that I could possibly do a dance piece on? And obviously one thought of soldiers and, uh, you know, suffragettes. When I was reading about it, I, I realised there was one thing about the First World War which actually hadn't had a lot of attention and, and that was the fact that the first huge global pandemic of flu happened just as the war was ending and actually more people died with the, what was called the Spanish flu even though the Spanish had nothing to do with it really. Almost three times the number of people died in the flu rather than in the war but obviously because war is a political thing we hear more about it 
and reading up about it, I realized I need to know about the virus. I needed to know about the Spanish flu. I needed to know about medical history. I kind of tried to do a little sort of crash undergraduate course in virology. And I spoke to some really interesting professors of virology. In fact, I spoke to the world's like leading person on the Spanish flu. So that's how one ends up going outside dance because you need, well, I felt I needed to educate myself about this very technical subject. What did the virus do inside the human body? And then, you know, I read a lot of social history around the pandemic and how it affected society. And it's a sort of subject that led me to some really interesting places. And then it's pretty crazy in a way that you created this piece before we even knew what was going to happen with the corona pandemic and I remember I watched it as part of Dancing Nation the online dance festival that Sadler's Wells did or the snippet from it what was it like when you recorded this for this context and with the new like knowledge of what had happened in the world obviously it gave new meaning but did it in some way influenced the, the restaging or how the dance is performed? The restaging was as was. And actually it's a piece that doesn't really very happily translate into film because the whole point about live contagion is it's for public areas and the music was through headphones. Everybody who watched it had headphones on, so it made it incredibly personal. And then it was also choreographed so that m most people would only be seeing one or two dancers at a time because they're sitting very close. Often uh, when you have, when it's filmed, you know, you sort of get the feeling that it's all about unison, but actually it's not. It's about looking at one or two bodies in a very intimate way, listening to the score in your head. It was meant to be a very personal experience. That's how it was when it's done live. And on film, it became just the opposite. It became a rather impersonal, far away from you type of experience. But yes, actually, when I was in France directing this opera, when we suddenly realized everyone was falling ill and we kind of realized very slowly that, yes, this must be the pandemic. But it was a very spooky feeling. I, in some ways, I was prepared for it just because I'd been living this pandemic for three years. I mean, the Spanish flu one, I mean, reading up about it, trying to, you know, say what I found interesting about it through dance, but it seemed history. We're talking about something 100 years ago and suddenly you had exactly the same thing, actually. It was the same place because no one really could do anything. There's no cure, like all virus attacks. And it still depended on good nursing and care. And again, a lot of mistakes were made and a lot of people lost their lives. Probably not as many as before, because actually when the Spanish flu happened, people didn't even have the word virus to actually identify it. So obviously we know more and we have the World Health Organization. So probably the effects on a global scale were not so disastrous. But on an individual level, I think it probably was a bit like 1918, you know, you slowly come to the understanding that something huge is happening around you. You don't quite know how to respond, you know. 
as we said, you've told so many different stories with your movement or looked at different areas. Just give a few other examples, like Fault Line in 2007, looking at the public anxiety around young Asian, particularly men, and their fears of terrorism, and then Contagion, as we mentioned, and also staging Sheila as well through a kind of more visual art angle, looking at the work of Austrian artist Egon Schiele, but also then the eternal conundrum between the male artists and the female model and how we deal with that. So that is such a big part of your work, but you're also within all of these kind of stories and themes and topics. You're also really well known for your eye for detail when it comes to composition and structure of movement. And to quote the wonderful Sanjay Roy, as he wrote in The Guardian, the way you shape dance phrases so that the whole adds up to more than a sequence of parts is something that you're very known for too. Can we maybe talk a little bit about your approach to composition and structure and what interests you in working this way and how you marry this with the larger themes and topics you work with? Dance has got two ways of arranging itself. One is where the movement itself can be brilliant, you know, it could be done by a brilliant dancer and it could really look interesting and you could go from one wonderful movement to another and it's a perfectly legitimate way of making dance. I've always been interested in, a bit like a, you know, a music composer, how things are knitted together, how one image goes to another image, you know, how one edits, a bit like a filmmaker. You know, you could have a drone shot of, you know, beautiful scenes which kind of melt slowly one into another or you might be the kind of director who actually is interested in very radical editing how does one go from here what sort of camera modes could you have if you suddenly wanted to go from the inside of a room to the outside so I think with dance there's this endless possibility of shaping the audience attention from one part to another and how with bodies one can knit the the movements you know and create something that is well for me interesting to do and hopefully interesting to watch so i am very aware of how things are put together you know the the sort of practicalities of how dance is created and that's something i find the most challenging part of dance every choreographer has to do it whether they do it consciously or not if you start with three dancers and then you want four that's a compositional decision how do you bring the fourth dancer in you know are they going to come from the side are they going to come from the middle how are they going to enter and then you want to go to one dancer how do you lose the other three those are interesting compositional decisions everyone's got to make you know and for me that's a sort of learning part of that craft of composition how does one do that and some choreographers work really highlight that process that's always been something that interests me (laughs) and in this process do you work very closely with the dancers to make these decisions as well do you think it's like collective or how do you approach this kind of decision making process is it when you're in the rehearsal room is it very kind of collective decision making or do you think some a lot of it comes down to your experience and your craft of composition i think composition is difficult for the dancer to do that just because you have to be outside in order to see what it looks like, you know? I mean, the dancer obviously could have an idea of what it looks like, but at the moment of making, I think it'll be difficult, which is the reason I had to stop dancing, because I really needed to go out and go outside what was being done and see, actually, the visual effect of doing X rather than Y. 
but actually where I feel that the dancers and myself have the most fruitful collaboration is actually generating the material to compose. So in that way, that's an area where I don't direct, so I don't make things on myself and ask people to copy what I do. Uh, for me, it's really important, though it's very time-consuming, that actually the ownership of the material is with the person who's actually doing it, rather than me imposing anything. And also, you know, I don't work with Indian classical dancers a lot, or I don't work with them regularly, so obviously my movement culture is very different to the movement culture of people I work with. So in some ways, you know, it's got to be a collaboration. I think movement generation is a different activity to composing what is generated. So I feel the composition part of it is a bit like being a director in a theatre play. You know, the director has to be outside. Obviously, that doesn't mean the actor has got no agency or no independence. The actor actually does a very important part of, you know, they're, they're devising the text and delivering the text and creating the text within themselves. And then the director's job in some ways is to make a coherent whole of all the different parts of the production. I wanted to talk a little bit now, building towards our talk of your upcoming performance, about how you've worked extensively in site-specific work in lots of different locations off the proscenium arch stage. This ranges from Palladian monasteries in Venice to, as we were going to be talking about in a minute, fountains in Somerset House's courtyard for Counterpoint, which you made in 2010. What inspires you about breaking outside of the proscenium arch stage and how do you identify locations you want to explore physically? I think it's wonderful to reach an audience outside theatres. You know, theatres tend to be audience who pay. You know, some people don't go to theatres or they don't want to go to theatres. So I think putting it in places which are not theatres immediately gives you an access to people who you don't otherwise may not meet. So I think that's one very strong pull for me. And the other thing is, Again, you know, we were talking about composition earlier on. In a theatre, there are very set ways you can, just because, you know, it's a box and you put everything in it. With a site, you have to compose around something that's already there. For example, in Two Mortal, there were pews of, of the church, so then you have to think about, well, how can I make that into a stage? Where is the audience going to be? Uh, you've got certain restrictions on one level, but you have an amazing freedom because you decide where the audience will be and how they're going to see it. So with Contagion, as I was mentioning, people listen to the music through headphones. That's a bit harder to do in a theatre. So the fact that you can get people to listen to the score through headphones suddenly changes the way they're going to read the work. You know, So you have really interesting and new things that you can play around with in a site-specific or a site-generic work. Yeah, amazing. And as I said, we were going to focus specifically on Counterpoint, which is a piece you made in 2010 for the fountains in the courtyard of Somerset House and that you're going to be returning to in August for a new series of performances. Before we get into the restaging of the piece, can you maybe tell us about the ideas you were working with when you first created it 13 years ago? The commission was, you know, make something for the fountains, well, actually make something for the courtyard by the then 
artistic director, programmer of Somerset House. I went to have a look, of course, now my office is there, but then it wasn't. So I wasn't going on an everyday basis to Somerset House. And I, I just kind of thought, wow, what a amazing location. I mean, it was just so grand and the scale was just enormous. And I kind of thought, well, what can I do with this? You know, do I need to put like 100 people in here? Obviously, you know, we couldn't afford 100 people. So it was a sort of a challenge because it was not a very, inti- you know, it's not an intimate uh, space. It's grand and it's huge. It's very geometric. It's very neoclassical. It's very typical of, I suppose, a, a phase in uh, British history. You know, it was at its height of its kind of imperial power. And I think it has that kind of confidence that comes from ruling huge swathes of the world and being the top dog. You know, if you look at Roman buildings during the Roman Empire, they have the same vastness and also the Mughals in India. So I think whenever people, when there are empires, the buildings tend to reflect that confidence of that culture at that particular time. So for me... Somerset House and its courtyard seem to be like that and also the uh, the very uncompromising geometry the way the fountains are designed so I thought okay well you know I thought let's have a, a counterpoint and not sort of like an antidote in fact my first choice of title for the piece was Trespass I mean I myself felt I was a bit trespassing on the space being from you know the other side of the colonial history and I as a woman and as a brown woman it's a bit of a challenge to you because you kind of feel well I'm at the opposite end of what this building is about so that's why I wanted to use 20 women I would have loved to have 55 women but there we go so you know a significant number of women and to see what I can do, you know, it's such a strong statement. Is it possible to counterpoint it? Or maybe it's just better to just kind of go with the flow. So actually the piece has both those possibilities. It has both those kind of answers. You know, there are moments where I don't and then moments where the dance does, actually. In some ways, you know, when the dance is being very geometric and playing with the patterns already there, there's an amazing strength. But then there are other moments where actually I think it's quite good not to follow the patterning of what is already there. But it's very difficult to ignore because it's like trying to speak next to a person with a huge megaphone. It really is. You've got to try and shout louder or do you just say very quiet and just make a total contrast. That was the interesting thing about choreographing counterpoint. Obviously, it's coming back this year and it's 13 years after it was first choreographed. What prompted you to return to it now in 2023? Well, obviously, I don't own the fountains or the courtyard. So actually, the request, in a way, has to come from Somerset House. We were just really thrilled that they wanted to restage it as part of their summer festival. It was filmed by Sky Arts in 3D, in fact, when it was first made. So it was a piece that people remember, which is great. (laughs) So hopefully... You know, we'll have the same fun redoing because it's a fun piece for the dancers. I mean, obviously they get totally soaked. But when we first showed it, it was actually incredibly hot July. And so there was a kind of element of play because most fountains, you're not allowed to go and dance around and kind of ruin the patterning of the fountains. So there is that element of trespassing 
when you're dancing in the fountains, which I'm hoping that we can bring back, you know, that sense of fun. Speaking of the dancers, I know that it features a combination of experienced professionals and also new graduates. Where did this idea come from about having this split cast of new graduates who are coming into dance and people who have been performing for a longer time? I think I've always been interested in working in that area of emerging professionals because, well, obviously I'm interested in my sector myself. I know it's very difficult after, you know, when you decide you want to be a professional dancer to actually the first few years in order to get your experience. And I think now it's actually even getting harder in some ways. So it's a scenario I've always been very interested in and I've made work for a lot of graduate companies as well as graduates. In fact, I've just finished making a piece for Langanabri Dance School for their third year graduates, which was an absolute joy. You know, it's wonderful to engage with people who are at the beginning of a career and, you know, hopefully you can help them a little bit if they want to ask you some questions and... Also, you know, I myself learn a lot and I feel very inspired by people who are inspired by dance all over again, you know. So it's always been an area of an interest. And so Counterpoint was always imagined by my company as choreography, but also with that element of outreach and giving a platform to younger dancers or dancers who are starting their career. So we specifically made it for people who have just graduated or at the beginning of their career. So they haven't actually got, a, you know, five years of dance experience. They might have just graduated in June. And so they would have had some experience, but this would hopefully make a contribution to their CVs. You know? And then having this new cast now, has that, and you saying before about how you work closely with the dancers in movement creation, has having this new cast changed or created an evolution in the piece at all? I think some things will change, but obviously it is a restaging and not a creating. So that's a, it makes a big difference because simply, you know, when we first created, we probably had about three weeks to make it. Now we have one week. You know, we can't start from ground zero. But dancers all have an effect on how a piece looks because you try and do things that play to people's strengths. So, yeah, definitely. It won't look completely different. There'll still be fountains. But I'm sure, you know, the dancers that are there are going to make an, a huge contribution to the final look of the piece. Very much looking forward to it coming in August. We've done a lot of reflecting and looking back at your work, but just as we come towards the end, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the future and if you have any specific ambitions as a choreographer, whether this is topics you'd like to address or things you'd like to work on that you'd like to do in the future that you can share with us. I know it's not always easy. (laughs) Last year, I directed my first opera for the Strasbourg Opera House. That was an amazing experience and I I mean I directed and choreographed so that was a challenge but it was an incredibly worthwhile and satisfying thing to do so that's something I would like to explore a bit more in the future where you have singers and dancers together and one is responsible for a very complete theatrical experience so that's definitely something I would love to do more and 
at the moment I'm also working on a piece which is going to be staged in 2025 and I'm exploring various ideas for in fact I'm, I'm reading The Tempest at the moment but it's one of many books I'm reading. <laughs> Thank you so much, Shobana. It was so amazing to talk to you today. I have one very final question, which may be a bit difficult as well, but we'll give it a go. As this is the Tepsikri podcast and we focus on interviewing leading women from the dance industry, we always ask everyone if they could meet and talk to any female dance practitioner from history, who would it be and why? And I say history, but they could also be alive today. I would choose maybe Ginger Rogers. I know Fred Astaire usually gets most of the attention, but I, I just thought whenever I've seen old films of her, I always think she's just such an elegant and beautiful dancer. It's forms like tap, you know, which maybe one may not think of as high art, but I think you just sort of notice the skill and the ease with how she delivers movement. And most of the time she's in a large skirt or something like that. So, But actually, it's just amazing how you can actually read what she's doing by just the movement of the fabric. And just the casualness, that's what I found really intriguing, the casualness with which she offers an amazing technique, but actually it doesn't seem to matter that people actually even don't notice the technique because they're looking at it in a film of this, you know, very lovely looking lady doing things. But it's drawing attention away from the technique to the effect of it. But I'm always amazed, always have been amazed by her dancing. A bit of a surprising choice, probably. But it's a great answer, actually. It's completely true what you say, almost like the amount of technique that has to go into disguising technique. Yeah, you're right. It's the technique that goes into disguising technique. I find that really intriguing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Shobana. It was great to talk to you today and good luck for the performance in August. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed the 20th episode of the Tepsikri podcast with the amazing Shobana Jayasing. If you would like to find out more about Shobana's work, why not follow her company on Instagram at Shobana Jayasing Dance or check out her website at www.shobanajayasing.co.uk. If you're based in London, also don't forget to head over to Somerset House to Shobana's performances of Counterpoint on the 19th and 20th of August. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as it helps other people to find us. You can also follow the Tepsikri podcast on Instagram at tepsikri underscore podcast or Twitter at tepsikri underscore pod. Thanks so much again for listening to the Tepsikri podcast with me, Emily May.